Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. This week's episode is one that I have been looking forward to for a while now. I am joined by Rainier de Graaf, a partner at OMA, the international architecture firm founded by Ram Coolhouse. Rainier co-founded AMO, the firm's research arm or kind of think tank in 2002, and has contributed to architectural projects ranging from the design of the flag of the European Union to master plans all around the world. As a theorist, Rainier has taught in various institutions and is the author of a great new book that came out last year called Four Walls and a Roof. In this episode, I was really interested in talking to Rainier about AMO as I find that to be an endlessly fascinating subsection of OMA's work. And so we talk about how it got started and its goals and how it contributes to the larger office. We also spend a lot of time talking about his book and how writing influences his practice and the tensions that happen when you are both a practitioner and a theorist. I found the book and what he writes about the realities of practice, and that's practice, whether it's a architecture or graphic design, to be really refreshing and fascinating. Uh, as many of you probably know, OMA has had a huge influence on my own thinking around building a multidisciplinary practice. And so it was a complete honor to have Rainier on the podcast. I really enjoyed this one, and I think that you will too. Remember, if you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that I think of as the director's commentary track for the podcast. Each month, I share additional content, episode previews, and short essays and thoughts related to the themes of the podcast. These memberships help keep the podcast going, and I just appreciate all of your support and hope that you enjoy this excellent conversation with Rainier DeGraff. talking a little bit about uh, AMO because you've um, you've been at OMA uh, you're the longest serving non-founding partner is that right yeah well uh, I'm the longest serving partner before there yeah, okay uh, okay great uh, with the exception of REM it's, it's technically correct okay so you're the longest serving partner but and- it sounds it sounds a little bit like the army right <laughs> right but but you also <laughs> intended byproduct. But I, I've been here. I mean, uh, essentially after REM, I, I'm I've been here longest. Okay, and you from the mid '90s. And you helped start AMO, which is essentially like a a sort of research arm of OMA, and that's always been an interesting branch of the work. I love all of the work of OMA, but I've always found AMO especially interesting. I think because I don't fully understand it, or I find it a little bit abstract and i'm wonder. i think it's a great place to start could you talk a little bit about kind of the the goal in starting that side of the the company and yeah. and what your role is there well essentially what it is it's 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 the arm of our office that does all projects which you would not suspect an architect would do <laughs> okay uh, i mean that is in a way the clearest uh definition it uh, it came about for the following reason. I mean, as as an architect, let's say one in every 10 projects that you do results in physical matter. Mm-hmm. The, rest, the rest are prematurely aborted efforts. They're efforts that for all sorts of reasons uh, 
never get concluded. And and but that doesn't mean they are worthless. Uh, very often, these efforts embody uh, enormously insightful experiences. Very often, they contain very valuable work, even if the end result wasn't a right. building. And we discovered uh, that, and at the same time, we we were always very open about that. I mean, a lot of architects spent the better half of their time hiding their failures. We've never right. been, we've always been right. quite candid. Uh, and I think the office was even very well known before it did its first building. So yeah. we, we had a problem with that. And perhaps because of that, let's say in the end of the 90s, a number of clients started to approach us uh, with their dilemmas. Mm. Not saying we need such and such and such a building, but rather we have such and such an operation, a company that faces these and these and these challenges. Uh, would you think along with us? Right. And uh, I mean, to do that with any integrity, you have to really also look at your own uh, business because, of course, should that question be asked to the average architect? <laughs> that was my next question, yeah. I, I know the answer to your problem. You need a big building. Right. Uh, and, and that means that as an architect, you always have an ulterior motive when you give somebody advice. Mm -hmm. you know, and not, and I, I, I'm firmly convinced that you know, a building is not the solution to every problem in the world. Right. In right. fact, probably more often it isn't than it is. So we uh, went along uh, with that. We thought along uh, with them on a number of different uh, exercises. Uh, we managed to discuss with them a form of economic compensation not rooted in the standard payment terms mm. of buildings. So we, since there were people interested in our thinking rather than in our, uh, as much as in our buildings, we, uh, we managed to, in a way, uh, engineer a business model that allowed us to think and have our thinking as an end product of our labor too. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so it, yeah, yeah. It came uh, about. I, th I think before we, this was also in an era that the role of the public sector uh, mm -hmm. decreased very sharply. I think we had a foundation, a kind of a cultural foundation uh, before which in a way did research for uh, our work. It, it mostly survived on subsidies, uh, public funding, but public funding dried up. So I guess you could say that with AMO, uh, we have managed to uh, persuade the market economy to in a way subsidize uh, or, or in a way fund uh, a part of our thinking, right. also clearly because they see the benefit. And it was interesting at the time. I, I think it also led to an interesting discovery on our part, uh, the rediscovery of architecture as a purely conceptual mm. meaning. Mm -hmm. You know, you look at the average vocabulary that, for instance, the digital world applies to itself, framework, right. platform, stage, theater, etc., uh, etc. Et they mm -hmm. are all architectural terms. Right. So curiously, at a moment in history when architecture itself is probably at its most marginal, actually its vocabulary <laughs> is only present. Right, right, right. So, so that's the paradox we experience, and that's in a way what led us to 
uh, found a second branch to our office. So I, I, I find that so fascinating, and I, I find a lot of parallels to graphic design, and I'm sure you, you get this a lot when, when, when you're working with people that, you know, so often as a graphic designer, we need a book, we need a poster, we need a brand, and, you know, nine times out of ten, that's not actually what you're doing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I have two questions that are somewhat related. I'm, I'm kind of curious how it actually relates to, is it a completely kind of separate branch of OMA? Are there overlap between, like, does sometimes that research turn into buildings and what we call traditional architecture projects? Yeah, it does, but it doesn't have to. Right. I think if we if we were to, because I mean, that's a question we get a lot, is uh, is it like the pre-studies right. uh, and the pre-research for a building? Sometimes it is, more often it isn't. Okay. Um, because I think if it, if it were, it, it wouldn't be very productive because then it would be researched, burdened right. by the same ulterior motive right. that, that we're trying to get rid of. So, um, uh, okay. and it, that's not to say that it doesn't inform uh our buildings, but when it does, it, it generally does so in a very unexpected way. It's a very aggressive type of interest we are taking in the global context in yeah. which architecture is produced. Yeah. Where, in a way, you have to look at that context on its own terms uh, for, for for any meaningful understanding to uh, e emerge. And and very often, strangely, what some AMO projects uh, have done is that they have actually turned relatively traditional requests for buildings or master plans into something else. For instance, we made mm. this um, corporate identity for the European Union oh, at right. the beginning in 2004. Yeah. There's this, you know, a rainbow flag, this barcode flag that we've made along with a whole load of other yeah. uh, kind of visual identity stuff. The initial request was for us to look at Brussels and see how the fabric of the city would be affected by the fact that they had now officially become the capital of the European Union. Oh, interesting. So people were, when they approached us, they were assuming kind of fairly traditional urbanistic work. Yeah. And we said, you can't translate anything into urbanism when you don't know what exactly it is that you're translating. <laughs> right, right. You know, you, you talk about the capital of Europe, but Europe isn't a country. So therefore, its capital is completely different than any of the stereotypical references right, right. that you have. There is no frame of reference. You need to define what the reference is. For that, you need to define what the essence of Europe is and how you can communicate that. And we wrote quite a lot about that. Uh, we worked with uh, the Foreign Policy Center, uh, an English, uh, th that's quite interesting that in those days you actually could have a British partner when it came to the EU. Right. Uh, uh, we, we wrote uh, quite a lot and we, we, we developed a series of very immediate symbols to convey Europe's identity in a very immediate way. Most of the communication that existed about Europe were endless books, endless pieces mm -hmm. of texts, long-winded uh, treaties, etc. And we looked for a way to communicate the essence of Europe in the media age, right. where, where the diversity and its message were, could be perceived at a glance. Yeah. We tried. Uh, we are still very, very proud of that work. Of course, uh, the EU <laughs> yeah. got ever worse shape since, uh, but as a... 
as a project, we still think it's 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 almost a test case. Yeah. Amo project. Yeah, 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 and totally. They, and and that was done for people who were in the immensely appreciative, immensely appreciative that we in a way had reframed the question. You know, I on the podcast I talked to a lot of architects. I, I talked to a lot of people who studied architecture and then go on to make things kind of like what you were just talking about, go on to make things that are not necessarily buildings or what we think of as architecture projects. And so something that comes up a lot is what is it about an architect's education that allows for this way of thinking? And I'm, I'm curious if you have thoughts on that or if your own experience, did you have a, was your goal to build buildings and kind of how do you think about taking these projects and you're like, you know what? It's not a building. This is something else. How, how do you kind of think about that in your own practice? Well, I mean, in, in my case, in my own case, it is something that emerged very, very gradually. I mean, I can assure you that as a student, uh, all I wanted to do was build okay. buildings. Okay. I mean, I was one of the worst kind. <laughs> I think that as a teacher, if I would encounter me uh, in this right. day and age, I would be totally horrified. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> so... Um, it's in a way part in, in my case is part of a very very slow evolution uh, of you know studying architecture and then practicing architecture and I guess one of the first seeds for something like AMO to emerge was planted in the immense difference that exists between studying architecture and practicing yeah. architecture the real shock that in a way you experience when you yes. do your first day of work in an office <laughs> you know and I didn't yeah. I didn't have you know, I guess I have the type of jobs that many recent graduates have, nothing special, uh, et cetera. But nevertheless, the difference was immense. And, and that gets you thinking and it gets you thinking about more and more stuff. It gets you thinking about your own profession, uh, its status, uh, the difference between the ideals you are thought, the kind of omnipotence that is attributed to architecture when you're studying and the total impotence that ensues once you're uh, working. Yeah. So I think that, in a way, uh, has created a very strong motivation on my side in looking at ways to undo that contrast, mm, the sense of powerlessness that emerges the moment you leave school. In, 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 and, and then gradually, uh, strangely, um, a, a certain effort at, at uh, controlling your own work is actually an, an active involvement in right. the context within which that work is produced. You can safely say that once you understand that context better, you might operate in that context differently and, and be a little bit more the master of your own work, maybe be a little bit right. more in of the types of things you get asked to do, that there is some involvement in, in not only formulating the answers, but formulating the questions. Right. And I think that is what what the, the big value of AMO next to OMA is, is that while OMA is involved in formulating the answers, AMO is involved in formulating the questions together with other people. Right, right. Yeah, I love that. Uh, it, that actually is a nice transition into your book. Um which is kind of, I read that and that's why I really what made me want to talk to you for Walls and a Roof because of two things specifically. And you hit the one already about the difference between studying architecture and, and being a, 
being an architect. And I, I, again, I don't mean to kind of tie this back to my own life and, and profession, but I had that sense as a graphic designer. Studying graphic design is a very kind of intellectual pursuit. And then you go into the the the, the workforce and suddenly there are all these other forces that are uh, kind of putting that pressure on you. And as someone who has always been interested in architecture, I always looked at architecture with a certain ideal idealism that <laughs> that architects didn't have that the way graphic designers did. And I love the way that your book kind of really articulates that. Um, and I don't mean to read back something that you wrote, but I, I the other part of, of the book that I liked a lot is you, you talk about architecture being this in this sort of paradox where it's it's your exact words were in economic terms it's mainly a reactive discipline a response to reformulated needs but in intellectual terms it's the opposite it's a visionary domain that claims the yeah. future aspiring to set the agenda and precede the needs um yes i loved that that was that, that was on page four of your book and i just to me that articulated so much of my yeah, own that's interest the in design of the book. i mean essentially one can yeah. stop reading after page four <laughs> yeah 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 where how can, can you talk about that more and I know. I mean, obviously, I want the listeners to pick up the book and read it. But to me, that was so. You don't hear people say that. Um, no, but it's, it kind of speaks for itself. Yeah. And 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 like many, uh, I guess I say many similar things throughout the book. Mm -hmm. And I'm just genuinely, genuinely surprised that no one has put that on paper before I did. Yeah. Yeah. Which which really baffles me because I'm I'm I, I think in many ways it's so obvious that I'm surprised it needs stating. Uh, but I guess it is telling. Uh, I, I guess it is very 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 telling about the state of our discipline uh, that that the most obvious is the last to be stated, uh, which means that probably as a profession we're 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 probably in an acute state of denial against our own marginalization. Mm -hmm. And the more we're in a state of denial, the more we'll be marginalized. And that is, I guess, the most potent reason for me to write the book is that I, I, I again, the book is more about questions yeah. than it is about answers, definitely. Yeah. Uh, and I get criticized for that uh, oh, interesting. a lot. But I, but, but I do think that, you know, the frank, the, the solution to any problem begins with the frank acknowledgement that there is a problem. Right. Right. And architecture isn't even remotely near that. So that, that's what the book <laughs> says. Guys, there is a problem. Yeah. How do you Maybe, yeah. how do you um how does that paradox manifest itself in your work both as a practitioner but then also as an educator and as a as a teacher? And and the reason I ask that is because I I see it in my work in my studio work, but then when I'm working with students, I'm totally presenting design as the the visionary, you know, kind of world-changing domain. How do you kind of, do you see those as different, whether you're working as a teacher or a... I, I find it quite easy to do as a teacher. Okay. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and I find uh, there I encounter more the opposite situation oh, than you just described about you. Oh, interesting. Is that while I exist on, uh, while I insist on research and perhaps looking at the world before proposing a building, is that uh, most students, most architecture students, are in an incredible rush 
right. to yeah. propose buildings before that. I mean, and that's why yeah. I say I was exactly like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. same. I was exactly like that. Yeah. I mean, the least curious individual on the planet. <laughs> um, but I've, I've learned the hard way that that is a dead end. So as a teacher, that's what I do. I tell people that. And then some people take it on. Some people take it really serious. And other people happily continue to do propositional work, which I guess is fine, too. You know, yeah. uh, but there at least you can state it openly. It becomes a very different story in the context of my own work as an architect in an office that is equally embedded in an economic reality, right. in an office that probably par excellence is the example, yeah. you know, for an omnipotent uh, office in the visionary domain, yeah. and at the same time, an extremely economically dependent entity. We are not rich. <laughs> Contrary to what people might think, we are not rich. I mean, we have to, you know, get by on a, on a yearly basis, on a monthly mm. basis. If we yeah. don't do anything for a while, we go bankrupt just like anybody else. Oh, so we work yeah. very, very hard for our money. Uh, and and uh, in a way, therefore, are at the beckoning call of clients who pay our bills. So we are, you know, at the same time, the, the, the symbol of economic dependence. Right. Um, for that reason, uh, and, and that is, again, that, that came recently in Metropolis magazine, um, uh, a big when after finishing a building in Sweden, a big headline where it said uh, Reinier de Graaf does not practice what he preaches. Oh yeah, I read that, and I, I I I agree, but I think that's besides the point. The point is that Reinier de Graaf does not preach what he practices, oh. and he's one of the few architects that doesn't. Right, and he preaches precisely because of what he practices, uh, you know, and I am uh, vastly critical uh, of, of some of the tendencies that also underlie the motivation uh, of our own uh, clients. Uh, and, and that's a real struggle. I mean, we have yeah. real struggles internally. What commissions do we take? What commissions do we reject? And in this world, I can assure you, there are no unequivocally good commissions Right. And no unequivocally bad commissions. I mean, right. the whole world is very gray, and you need to take it almost on a case-by-case -case basis where you make a guesstimate. You know, every project is a neck-and-neck -neck race between good intentions and bad intentions. Yeah. Make, you make a judgment call at the beginning as to which one you think will prevail, and on the basis of that, you invest in an exercise, but I mean that that you can conduct a kind of Satan's ritual uh, and right. do a, an exorcism uh, of the evil out of clients and operations is, of course, a complete illusion. But architects can't abstain. Right. They can't be like journalists that stand back, mm -hmm. analyze, criticize. My whole existence is a curious mixture between reflection and involvement. I mean, that's schizo that schizophrenia. That precisely that schizophrenia. Yeah. Of you know, an analytical view and a deep involvement in 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 and getting one's hands dirty. That is embedded in the amo oma right. distinction. Right. That is embedded in my daily life, where I like just like you. I like writing. I like observing. I like saying in how it is. Yeah. At the same time, uh, you're involved in that which you write about. So you you. That's, that's the current age, that a, almost anyone is a curious hybrid between uh, a victim and a perpetrator. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And it, again, it's something, you know, I think, I think that is something that is not 
always articulated openly in the way that you just said it. And I think that's why your book is so refreshing is it does kind of just lay bare all of these paradoxes and all of these contradictions within the field that is often seen. And you write about this again and again, the book of kind of the stark architect model, the, the kind of lone genius doesn't always work like that. How no, well, it, it never works like right, that. Right, right. But the, but for me, the, always the, also the curious thing is that, you know, uh, ever since the fall of the Berlin Wall, mm-hmm. uh, this stopped being a world of opposing ideologies. Uh, so ever since the Berlin Wall, almost everything, everywhere in the world is a curious hybrid of things. Mm-hmm. Hybrid sometimes of progressive policies and the market economy as a fundamental driver. So at this point in time, I would say that nobody actually escapes that very schizophrenia. Nobody in the world. And and for me, it is very curious that precisely at the moment of its inescapability, the tolerance for it is smaller than ever. You see this everywhere. You see it in Europe. You have left-wing parties. They're very popular until they participate in a coalition government. Once they participate in a coalition government, the next round of election, they get punished like hell. Right. Uh, our, our socialists got decimated after the last elections right. simply because they tried to apply their policies in a coalition with another party. Yeah. They had to compromise the tolerance or the understanding for compromise is almost smaller than ever. And that is very mm. worrying. I think yeah. that leads to the, 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 the rise of a phenomenon like Trump. Right. Who's yeah, really totally. going to fix anything. Who's really not going to do anything you will have four very loud very wasted years yeah 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 you don't need to, you don't need to tell me that no but in as much as this podcast is broadcasted in the united states right 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 you know i i think what you said about how you don't it's not that you don't practice I, I think i'm going to mess up what you said it's not that you don't practice what you preach it's that you don't preach what you practice yes. i'm i'm curious you know, you do all of these different things. You are writing, you are teaching, you're giving lectures, um, you are working in in a firm. How do those things interact, especially when you're sometimes coming from a different perspective, where sometimes you're coming as an architect, sometimes you're coming as a theorist, um, and those don't always align. Do you, how do you think about how those things come together? Or are those kind of dis- discrete activities for you? No, well, of course they come together, and and of course what you think you think it always, and you don't just think it when you're thinking. Yeah. Um, it uh, it comes into play what you what you think comes into play in moments when there cannot be an automatic pilot, mm. and, and there are a fair few of those moments in the life of an architect. Uh, they come at a moment. The first moment that it comes is when on a Monday morning you go through future work and you decide what to do and what not to do. Yeah. That's when you clearly apply your thinking. Right. It's very nice because there is no design response to any of the things yet. So there isn't any sentimentality mm-hmm. uh, of the design that you, you want to be precious of. So that's probably the most important moment of purity is do or do we not do this? Right, right. Then... Uh, following that, uh, there is there is very very many moments in in the course of a building. Uh, of course, very very many moments when you are asked to make compromises beyond the point where you don't really think it's worth continuing. I mean, those are routine uh, right. uh, 
occasions, which is when you need your thinking almost more than ever. First of all, to avert a meaningless compromise or to kind of, in a way, have an overall change of direction, of course. I find we do that quite a lot, that we have directions. They either work or they don't work. Sometimes they don't work. They they are asked clients then, you know, I guess in a half-hearted effort to be respectful, mm-hmm. uh, ask you nicely to make a compromise. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then I find that we very often prefer to start from scratch on an alternative Mm. rather than embarking on a compromise that we think is too much of a compromise, which is why uh, our labor is so intensive, which Mm -hmm. is is why we make the long hours, which is also probably why we're not rich. (laughs) And and, and we, we in a way celebrate, that's when your thinking comes into play again, because it means that a design you're precious about, you have to say goodbye to it, you have to start again. How do you start again? What went wrong? What what might be a more fruitful cause? What might be a cause Mm -hmm. that allows us to emerge victorious in the end? So they are, they're at the beginning Right. moments of thinking and and there uh, happen kind of during ruptures during the process of which there is always a fair few is this kind of act of writing and act of thinking through projects intellectually how does that influence the entire office is that kind of like a a, a way of thinking that permeates everything i mean you are a prolific writer rem obviously is known as a writer probably equally as an architect does that, yeah. How does that kind of trickle out to the, the rest of the office or inform how the office functions and works? Well, I guess the rest of the office reads what we write, <laughs> although it's not, uh, although it's not uh, obligatory literature. You know, you don't right. have to read what we write. I mean, people are also <laughs> at liberty to ignore what we write. I mean, that's one of those. And that's probably a very, very good thing. Right. Um, both my disposition towards architecture as well as my general theoretical disposition, and even, I would honestly say, uh, the style of some of my writing mm-hmm. uh, was heavily influenced by REM. Yeah, yeah. Very heavily influenced by REM, and of course, for a long time, I was not a partner, I was an employee. Right. Uh, he was my boss, uh, and and I knew he wrote, uh, but notwithstanding the fact that he was my boss, I happily wrote what he, I generally wrote uh, read what he wrote with with great delight and and yeah. found it very insightful, even if it didn't immediately tell me how to do the next building. <laughs> right. Even if there were right. very little clues as to because he never he, generally with a lot of his writing and I think that's similar. You don't know whether it's a celebration or a critique. Right. You don't know whether eulogy. Yes. Yeah. Uh, or vilification. It is very beautifully. It's very. Um, uh, empirical uh, it's very fen- phenomenological mm-hmm. is that he describes phenomena with a very very keen eye yeah. without judging them at the same time there is very few adjectives right. uh, in his writing there's quite a few adverbs uh, <laughs> yes. for very little adjectives which is a, a stylistic thing that I think you yeah. you will find him writing as well did, did he encourage you to, to write or, or oh he didn't know I was writing okay no, he didn't know I was writing. I, I did this. Uh, uh, I mean, the book is written under personal title. Right. And I'm half the time when he's writing, I don't know when he's writing. I mean, writing is a happens best in a condition of privacy, of yeah, extreme yeah, privacy. Yeah. So it's so just... This book, yeah, this book is under personal title. It came about in holidays, 
Christmas breaks, weekends, long plane journeys, uh, train rides. Uh, yeah, yeah. And that's the, and you've sensed that in the book. It's a collage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, as I said, there are eruptions of energy which happened more or less in the cracks of the day. And uh, but I, I I know that he does like the book a lot after he read it. Okay, but I mean, but he never I, knew, and he, he had nothing to do with it. Oh, that's so interesting. I guess you know, maybe maybe not even the book specifically, but I guess I'm kind of curious. So you were just kind of you know, he would publish something, and you would happen to read it, but there wasn't, um, you know, like, hey, writing can help you figure out these things, or writing is another form. No, of no, no, nothing, to... nothing as manifest as that. Oh, no, interesting, no, no. interesting, because because that's what he, I. I yeah, I think he did ask me to read various iterations of Junk Space okay. uh, back in the days uh, when it was da 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 da, da and, I, and I commented, and that's the the only moment I think that the the, the sort of the writing. Yeah. Well, he wrote it. I mean, I, I claim no authorship, but that right, there was right. a kind of symbiotic, uh, or that the shared interest actually became something uh, we shared. Oh, interesting. So yeah, uh, that's. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think, you know, completely unrelated. I think Junk Space was the first thing that Rem had written that I had read back when I was in school. And that's when I think I was first introduced to him, actually. Um, it's in, it's just interesting because I do see so many similarities in how you write, the kind of the tone of the writing, some of the subject matter. And it seems it's like you said at the very beginning it's asking a lot of questions. It seems like it's a way to work through problems. And so it's interesting to me that that's just kind of a, a thing that just kind of happens in the, the process that it isn't uh, something that's formalized or encouraged in some way. Um, yeah, that's yeah. I, uh, I have two more questions and these are questions that I use to kind of wrap up all of these interviews. I'm curious, you know, what are the, and we've talked about all sorts of, of topics through this conversation. What are some of the things that are on your mind right now or what are some some issues or subjects that you are working through whether it's in your work and your teaching in your writings things that are kind of exciting you right now um well at the moment something i mean something i am most interested uh uh in at the moment is 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 a kind of political dimension of architecture mm -hmm. and whether it is possible to repoliticize architecture <laughs> to an extent again uh, we, uh, after uh, the book, we've uh, done a very interesting uh, project at Harvard uh, where we studied ghost towns. Oh, and, right. well, we called it phantom urbanism Yeah. Uh, because it's not technically ghost towns. They were enormous modern cities, enormous modern real estate developments that got built but were never inhabited. Mm -hmm. uh, and and, and right. uh, the, that has... A, and, there are fairly recent, there are phenomenon, not just in China, but everywhere in the world since the crisis of 2008. Mm -hmm. And and they very much have to do with the financial system in an era where interest rates are at an all-time low. It is not mm -hmm. primarily people that are looking for a home. It is money right. that is looking for a home. <laughs> right. And I think what you are beginning to see is that enters the consciousness of architectural design, yeah. where people already start to design things, which in a way they know will never be inhabited, with all the curious uh, details that come with uh, with that, that details that in a way um, conceal 
the fact that they're uninhabited or celebrate the fact that they're uninhabited that in a way financial typologies i mean somebody made a very one of the students at harvard actually made a very interesting analogy between the tall residential tower of vignoli on park avenue oh yeah and a barbie doll Mm. and he said similar in the way that a barbie the figure of a barbie doll is deformed to accommodate desire beyond the limits of health similarly the tower of vignoli is deformed beyond the laws of construction to accommodate desire. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, and, wow. and, and it is d- that desire, uh, in a way, has an effect. That, that desire has an effect that transcends and, and, and eclipses functional requirements. And, and that, therefore, perhaps the age of the icon mm-hmm. is precisely that. Uh, so that is a phenomenon that... Uh, it's hugely interesting for me because there's also, of course, an enormously political dimension to the fact that a vast amount right. of real estate is a pure investment vehicle at this day and age. And that even modern architecture, you know, the architecture that has emerged from form follows function in this right. day and age is completely subject to those laws, right. which I think is the biggest paradigm shift probably since the modern movement and which is also very, very untheorized at present. Yeah. So that is thing we're looking at at the moment. And so is that primarily happening in in that class at Harvard, or are you doing things with? No, no, no. It's, I mean, it started in the class at Harvard. We studied uh, the Newtown program of Angola, okay, which was built uh, by the Chinese uh, on on the basis of an oil backed loan. Uh, built for an Angolan middle class that never emerged mm. since oil prices plummeted. Right. So that the, the, there is a, a a lot of examples uh, in Africa of that phenomena. But there are examples in Ireland. There are examples in Spain. There are examples in the U.S. in Latin America, pretty much everywhere. And uh, this is something we started in Harvard, but in a way has become part of an ongoing effort of our own uh, research team and also at other schools. I mean, it's something that you really need to take your time studying because otherwise you're also bound to say stupid things about it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. That's so interesting. My my last question, this is a question that I use to uh, end all of these conversations. I'm curious... Who are the the authors or the critics or the writers who have really influenced you in the way you think about all of these things that we've we've talked about today? I find it very difficult because I'm, I'm very I'm, when it comes to reading, I'm incredibly omnivoric. Okay, that's great. Uh, uh, I read anything from kind of very very trashy magazines, uh, gossip columns to, uh, you know, contemporary philosophy. Yeah. Uh, and, and I, in a way, happily read um, all of it. A writer uh, that I personally uh, like a lot is the French writer Michel Houellebecq, mm. who you can, who I, I think has brought to literature a very, very, raw and interesting uh, new dimension and and a lot of what he writes uh, also says a lot about the market economy and says a lot about the market economy and economic competition on on personal relationships between people and and the effect of the market economy on love Mm. uh, which I think he does in a way that I don't know anybody uh, who does it quite like I say he's he's one of my favorite writers but I mean in terms of 
Influence. Uh, I, I sort of take influence wherever I can get it. Yeah, yeah. Let me just ask it this way, just so I can hear a little more. What recently have you read that that you've enjoyed or that has stuck with you? Uh, recently, I read Bonfire of the Vanities again by Tom Wolfe. Oh, I haven't read uh, that one yet. Okay, it's uh, and I did that because I'm working on a novel myself at the moment, oh. uh, and under personal title, I'm in the process of writing. A novel. I finished the first draft of a novel. I wish you didn't bring this up at the end of the conversation. I could have talked to you about this for another hour. (laughs) Yeah, I I know. But I mean, we can do that another time (laughs) when it's actually finished and published. Uh, I mean, I've I've finished the first draft, but I'm sure it needs, and I'm working with an editor on it at the moment. And I'm sure it needs a hell of a lot more work. And I'm going to do that work before I start talking about it. Okay. Okay. Uh, But the reason why I was interested in Bonfire of the Vanities is because it operates. with a three-way perspective, a three-way point of view mm. on a singular event. Oh, okay. And that is a technique which uh, my book uh, also uses. So I read that for very selfish, very technical uh, reasons. Right. But I do think it's a great book too. Yeah, I've read some Tom Wolfe, but that one's always – I've skipped that one for some well, reason. Well, I think it's the novel that epitomizes the 80s – I mean, you've got the nonfiction book Barbarians at the Gate, and yeah. then there is uh, Bonfire of the Vanities, and those two books, I think, really sum up the 80s, really sum yeah. up the America of Reagan. And and it's, of course, a time I remember. Right. Uh, right. I, I was young, but I remember the time. So I, I like the book for that reason, but I mostly read it to simply copy his tricks. Yeah, I love that. that was, that's a, this is a great way to kind of wrap this up. Thank you so much for this conversation. I'm a big fan of you and your work. I loved the book. Um, And it was so great to talk to you. Thanks for being on the podcast. All right. My pleasure. Thank you. This episode was recorded on December 17th, 2018. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.